it's the little things. A favorite client, we, we had charges withdrawn for him and his wife and he comes and he gives like a lovely card and he knows like I'm a Star Wars freak. Well, Star Wars freak, I do like Star Trek. Ghostbusters is definitely up there right. and James Bond, but this is amazing. It's a Swarovski, what, what the f is it? Swarovski crystal of Obi-Wan Kenobi. Just, I, I'm like so thankful to this client. It's like just lovely. So thank you very much. It's like, can you, can you just, Mars, can you do a cameo and just point it to the cameras? Yeah, get a zoom on it. Like what a great guy. Like, you know, it was my pleasure. Should we put it right here? Yeah, we should. It was my pleasure just being able to help him and his wife. But like, that's just like, it's lovely. It is. Speaking about lovely. Yes. Gotta tell you. So this episode, we're going to talk about a case we had mentioned two times before, um, but it was a fairly significant, if not a historic judgment, um, as far as our review of cases in Canada. So I can't name the case because we can't identify anybody, but uh, we received judgment on Friday where our client was acquitted of two counts of sexual assault arising from allegations from his former wife that were raised during the course of a high conflict divorce, of course, fighting over money. And um, there were historical allegations of sexual assault. And I had specifically, when initially meeting my client, had grave concerns about his, his, his mental health. And he, he was in a very distraught state. And when we asked for him to provide us with many of the messaging between him and his wife over the course of their two and a half year marriage, of which he had almost everything. It was a highly documented back and forth because she insisted on a lot of communication and writing because of her nature. We looked at the entirety and felt that he was truly uh, an abused uh, husband. And we had sent him off for a psychological assessment and therapy and then a psychiatric assessment all combined. And it was concluded that he was diagnosed with um, a traumatic a disorder. Um, you can refer to it as, you know, um, a battered spouse or a battered partner. That's not really the clinical term, uh, but it was a traumatic disorder uh, arising from abuse that he experienced um, throughout the marriage, which was emotional and psychological. And when we talk about course of control, it goes both ways. Okay. So we hired two very good experts who not only did the assessment, but part of what we did was we had our client involved in group therapy so that it was not just simply uh, the experts giving their opinion, but there was uh, over 21 hours of group therapy where there was a dialectical approach with the other people who were in this group. So it's very high to mask or to, um, to feign these type of symptoms. What did that look like? the group therapy. Yeah. So they're, they're literally in a group and they're all talking about their experiences. But what happens is you'll have the other uh, members of the group challenging and asking, oh, did that really happen to you? How'd you react to that? What, you know, so they will challenge each other. It's interesting. It's a very dynamic yeah. sort of dialectical approach. And I think it's because they, they want to determine if the group is moving forward, who's got legitimate symptoms or not. And a lot of the time it arises to really good analysis and then you know diagnosis of more symptoms and treatment. So it was not just simply our experts, but it was group therapy of which there was countless hours, 21, I think 21 to 30 hours actually, of viewing of this type of uh, group therapy. 
So we had a very robust, reliable report. And at trial, um, part of our client's evidence was how this course of control and abuse impacted him. It was relevant to how he approached consent, how he was exceptionally cautious with consent um, and seeking consent from, uh, from the complainant, as well as why you would see in a number of communications after she says these sexual assaults occurred, he is apologizing left, right, and center. Not specifically apologizing in anything about this, but one, but she had specifically put forward two messages, which she had said was him directly apologizing for the abuse. After I cross-examined her, pretty, pretty clear she's lying. It wasn't about that. It was about other stuff. But it would explain why he was so demure, compliant. so so compliant, so, so um, subservient, frankly. And then we called the expert to testify. And in the judgment, the judge did a great job of uh, doing an analysis of all the evidence, in particular, the reliability and credibility of the complainant. But what factored in was his acceptance of the expert evidence. So it was admitted at trial, the evidence was accepted by the trial judge, and it was weaved into his um, analysis of why she was not credible. Also dealing with how you interpreted the messages and how, uh, how cautious he was about approaching her for consent, because one of the sex assaults was you know a full-on rape which when you read all the messages and we're talking over 300 messages and and based on everything you'd be like there's no way, no way yeah. he would we would ever be the not all that of a sudden guy. that second he'd become a monster right and then the other one was when they were cuddling um uh, when they had just woken up his hand was allegedly on her breast and that was a sex assault okay and the judge was very careful in the analysis and exceptionally good and and found that it, I, I don't have the judgment yet because it's, it's being written right now, but um, the, the, the portrait of who our client was based upon his own testimony, the messages, cross-examination of the complainant and the expert evidence was uh, in, in stark contrast to how she painted him out. And more importantly, when you took into consideration cross-examination, when I cross-examined her about all these messages in conjunction with the expert report, the judge agreed with our submission that the one who was in control of this relationship and dominating was her. So this was a very significant, very significant finding. And it's not that this will uh, be useful in every case. And uh, it will be useful in some cases where there is course of control of a male spouse and it factors into how you approach consent and apologies and everything like that. But it also, frankly, in my opinion, demonstrates that gender is not that relevant to abuse. Abuse is abuse. Right. And yes, there's domestic violence against women, and it's a real factor in our community, and we need to deal with it. But there is, there is abuse of men. And when we talk about course of control, and, and we see this in the literature from uh, you know, advocates and feminist groups, uh, about women being coercive controlled, it's legitimate. It goes both ways, right? So, but the when, stereotype doesn't. That's right, and 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 abuse is abuse, and we shouldn't just simply have it as a gender-based issue. It really happens to men and women, right. Right. and and it's serious. So just so this is really big, and so we talked about this in a prior case because, and and some of our viewers were writing me going, "Oh, come on, was there really an allegation that as they were cuddling when he was waking up, his hand was in the boob?" Yeah, that was one yeah. of them. That was literally one of them. One of the other complaints that was uncharged 
was when they were on the honeymoon in Mauritius or somewhere in Africa on a safari. I should be so lucky, okay? Um, he had her, he had his hand on her thigh um, and she was very uncomfortable with that because there was other people in the truck as they were going up and down, going through the safari, and that was a sexual assault. So her concept of what her violation of her body was, was pretty skewed. And it really got to the core of who she was. So I just think this is a monumental case. And, and frankly, this was an individual who was really just, it was one of my most fun cross-examinations because, you know, she thought, she, she's very bright, very accomplished, but, you know, clearly a manipulative person uh, who, who, frankly, in my opinion, was highly narcissistic. I, use, I would have used stronger words, but you can but, be... But, can it, be you know, and, and he was acquitted, if not exonerated by this decision. Let's talk for a moment, though, about what expert evidence is and how do we get expert evidence admitted and in why, who said in what case, ironically, that we're going to need expert evidence about abuse against men. Okay, so let's, let's talk about, uh, first of all, expert evidence and what the Supreme Court of Canada has set up. So in a case called uh, Inman and Halliburton, the Supreme Court of Canada explains uh, the two steps that a court has to... Uh, and take it slow, because yeah. again, you know, most okay. of our viewers don't have a legal background, but they yeah. love when we talk about the law and explain it to them. Yeah. So take it slow. So two steps a court has to uh, embark on in determining whether to admit expert evidence at a trial or, or wherever in a proceeding. So at the first step, the person trying to get the evidence in has to establish the threshold requirements of admissibility. I'll say that again. The threshold requirements of admissibility. And there are four. Uh, the Supreme Court has set those up in a previous case called Mohan from 1994. And basically, and we'll, we'll put the citation yeah, up yeah. later. So, so there, there are four factors. Relevance, necessity, absence of an exclusionary rule, and a properly qualified expert. And in addition to that, you know, in the case of an opinion that's based on some novel or new contested science, the reliability of the underlying science for that purpose. So I'll say it again. Yeah, so this is important. Again, relevance, necessity, absence of an exclusionary rule, and a properly qualified expert are, are the main four factors to determine admissibility. So that's what you were dealing with in this case. That's the first step. Then there's the second step that the courts have uh, put in place. It's, it's called the gatekeeping step. So we know judges are in charge of what goes in, what doesn't go in. So for the gatekeeping step, the judge has to balance, and I'll say it slow, it's a bit tricky, the potential risks and benefits of admitting the evidence in order to decide whether the potential benefits justify the risks. I'll say it again. The judge balances the potential risks and benefits of admitting the evidence in order to, to decide whether the potential benefits justify the risk. So it's, it's, a complex, it's, it's a complex test. The words are simple, but a lot goes into uh, what a judge has to consider, and, and as he did in your case. Now, you asked me about... Uh, Let me just raise two things, sure. first of all. One, so this is not easy. No. You need to have the proper foundation mm -hmm. and, um, and relevance to admit this evidence. So when evidence is admitted, expert evidence is admitted, particularly in our case, mm -hmm. this is no small measure. It's not something that's easily no. undertaken. No, no, 
and that goes for the Crown when they're admitting expert evidence. Two, if you're in front of a jury versus a judge alone, is it easier to get any evidence before a judge alone than a jury? Because you can give a limiting instruction to a jury or instructions how to use it, but you never know what they do. But if you're judge alone, the judge will know how to handle it. Maybe you can explain that a little bit. Because there are tactical reasons why we may decide to have a judge alone trial like we did in this case. Well, yeah, a, a judge can understand, for example, you making the argument for a new novel type of uh, expert evidence that you want to break in. He or she can instruct themselves. They can, as you said, uh, demonstrate you know, on the record that they're taking into consideration all the various factors from Mohan, et cetera, versus a jury. Even with instructions, sometimes it's a dangerous, dangerous, dangerous place to be with a jury and understanding those instructions. And so let's relate it to our, to, to our case for a right. moment. So in this case, one of the risks could be the expert evidence could be used by a trier of fact. Right now I'm referring generically to a judge or jury that somehow they could use it to say that this evidence is relevant that of course he had obtained consent, right? right? Now we don't have to prove that. The Crown has to prove lack of consent. But the danger is that the expert evidence could be used to uh, be considered on the ultimate issue. The ultimate issue in a sex assault case is consent. Can the Crown prove beyond a reasonable doubt lack of consent? And the danger would be, will this expert evidence then encroach upon that consideration of the ultimate issue? And in front of the, and we were very clear in our application, it has no bearing on whether consent was obtained or not. What it did have a bearing on was how cautious he was because he was walking on eggshells. Egg right. He was nervous. Right. He was, dis- he was um, uh, you know, very demure in everything, approached very, asked permission. For everything. For I've, everything. I've met him. Everything. Literally. Can I sit here? Can I, can I do this? Can I do that? Like, yeah. yeah. Use, use of the washroom. Right. Okay. If she was taking a shower, He was not allowed, in messages, not allowed to knock to say, can I come in and use the toilet? It's one washroom. It's a small condo. Yeah. She would get angry. She even admitted this under cross eventually. So he'd have to text her like she has her phone while taking a shower. So he often, in the messages, he said, okay, I can't reach you. You're in the shower. I'm going to go downstairs to the gym in our building and use the washroom there to go take a pee. Not kidding. Not kidding. So we were not raising it on the issue of the ultimate right. consideration of whether there was consent or not, right. but how cautious and how he sought permission for everything. So if he sought permission to use the washroom in a condo, frankly, that he owned prior to them getting married, and he owned it for two years, and when they got married, she insisted on going on title. And, and he, I'm not and saying you shouldn't share all your assets right, with your right. spouse. I mean, I do. I, I love my wife, and we do, but... But, but he brought her in to his world and shared everything he had. And he had to ask that permission. Is that person likely on one night to have just pushed her on the bed and just f***ing raped her? Yeah. No. No. Okay, Highly so, unlikely. So I digress a bit. It's okay. But so it's not on the ultimate issue. We've talked about yes. how it's, you know, judge and jury. Right. And then why do we need expert evidence about a man being abused in a domestic relationship? And who helped us with this ironically ironically and take this one slow this one will be look very at the slow. cameras look at the cameras because this is a beauty Which camera we, we said this before but this is yeah this, this, this is stuff. a beauty so i'm gonna read it just so i'm gonna read it slowly and verbatim because it's important 
So this is, first of all, from, from, from Leroux du Bay in a case called Mallet. Okay. And the comments she makes from the Supreme, uh, Supreme Court of Canada. And, and this is what she and says. She was a brilliant judge. She was. She was. She says, men's experience of domestic violence are treated differently than those of women and are presumed to be less traumatic. Okay. My, oh, Repeat pause. that. <laughs> Repeat it. Men's experiences of domestic violence are treated differently than those of women and are presumed to be less traumatic. Scary. Go ahead. Keep going. And this is what she says. My focus on women as the victims of battering and as the subjects of battered wife and battered woman syndrome is not intended to exclude from consideration those men who find themselves in an abusive relationship. So she leaves the door open. However, the reality of our society is that typically it is women who are the victims of domestic violence at the hands of their male intimate partners. Okay, that's prevalent. Yes. But, but to assume that men who are victims of spousal abuse are affected by the abuse in the same way, and this is key, without the benefit of the research and expert opinion evidence which has informed the courts of the existence and details of battered woman syndrome would be imprudent. I'm going to repeat that because that's an important one. To assume that men who are victims of spousal abuse are affected by abuse in the same way, that's even underlined in the case, without the benefit of the research and expert opinion evidence which has informed the courts of the existence and details of battered woman syndrome would be imprudent. And that's where you came in. Very important. Yes. So, Justice Lourdes de Bay said, because there is a general perception back then, and it's still the same perception now, that men are less likely to experience any type of abuse in a domestic relationship, and if they do, it's less traumatizing, requires expert evidence before a court to explain its impact and its relevance and how it factors into a trial. So it's on that basis that we were then able to get this evidence out. Whereas if it's a, a woman who's experiencing domestic violence, that is already recognized and well understood and does not require expert evidence. But in our case now, we have set the precedent, and I'm not saying, I have not read a reported decision on this, so this is going to be a reported decision, but I have not read one where the abuse of a male partner in a domestic context was admitted and relevant to the assessment of the overall case proffered by the Crown and hence relevant to the reliability and credibility of the complainant. And in this particular case, it carried the day in my respectful right. opinion, aside from the fact that cross-examination was pretty f***ing good. <laughs> as, um, it all, as it always is. But we have the unique position here of representing for good or for bad, our practice has evolved over, both of us are well we're over 30 years now. Who's counting when you're having fun? I know. And, you know, it's evolved to representing uh, individuals who are wrongfully accused. Typically men, we have women who come to us in high conflict divorces yeah. who are the subject of wrongful accusations of domestic violence, all for leverage in a family court. But typically we have men, mm -hmm. but, but gender violence affects men and women. 
And so this is our this is our bailiwick. This is what we have. And now there is this case that speaks directly to the issue where expert evidence has been admitted and used in a cogent and very credible fashion to show that men are abused and can and 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 are impacted in a very traumatic way. And that impacts the overall assessment in the case. I think this is incredibly important. It's huge. It's huge. As you said, there, there's no jurisprudence on this. I couldn't find a case. And this isn't to, you know, this isn't to negate violence against women at all. No, no, not at we all. We all recognize this. All we're trying to do is deal with accusations that we are are pretty keen at finding are false. And 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 I'll just say this as well. We've been contacted by an academic recently because one of our podcasts spoke about another case where our client uh, was found factually innocent at trial. Okay, that doesn't happen that often. And this academic who does very credible research has taken up something I've asked about, and we're going to explore this now and see, about trying to do some solid, academic, rigorous research on false accusations. Because it, it doesn't exist. There, there has been no study undertaken in Canada to determine how significant or insignificant it is. And you will see repeatedly in cases and sometimes in investigations that the idea that somebody would make up an allegation of sexual assault whether you're um, a male or a female or of other gender or a child is a rarity, an exceptional rarity. And we have to debunk that myth. For sure. And, and it does not mean that there's not legitimate allegations, but we have to debunk that myth. So an, ac an academic has reached out to us and we're going to see what we can do about starting some rigorous academic research to try and really get at the nub of this. But this case now sets a precedent. And I hope it has ripple effects outside of the courtroom. I hope guys are now no longer afraid to make that 911 call or to make that report that they are in these relationships because now there's going to be recognition. They will see, oh, this case is a first. We are now recognized. You know, that's huge. It's a good point because it's not just important in, in the courts and the case law. It's about reporting it's abuse. About, it's, re it's reporting abuse. Because right. men will be reluctant to come forward about any type of physical abuse because psychological abuse is not a crime yet. Right. We'll see. Yeah. You know, they're pushing for this course of control. Well, and we're raised like that. Don't be a crybaby. Your sister hates you. Don't be a cry. Like, that's how we're brought up. Right. Don't be crybabies. So it's right? an important element to say, you know. You can be crybabies. You no, know, well, you. No, I mean, if you're abused and, and it's something legitimate, I, 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 you know, I have to be honest. I right. think the criminal justice system is overused. I think we have an overemphasis on um, stigmatization and punitive measures. That said, you know, the chilling effect in the past of the concept of men being abused, I think is starting to thaw now. And with a case like this, men who are truly abused can come forward. And, you know, I had the benefit a long time ago of being a lead counsel um, for a government agency at, at the Cornwall Public Inquiry, on sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. That was an interesting, uh, I think, um, watershed moment in, in Canadian history where there was rampant, oddly enough, uh, in one town, rampant abuse of male, sec uh, male victims of sexual abuse at the hands of other men. Um, and it, it permeated many facets of the community. So I was, I was counsel for a government agency. But what was interesting was the lack of resources for male victims. Lack of 
an understanding of a male victim, uh, very dismissive of their claims of abuse. And even till today, we have resources now for, for men who are victims of abuse, but it is still at its infancy. Yeah, it's nowhere close to... And it's important yeah. to say that abuse is abuse, right. regardless of gender. It's gender neutral. That's the message that opinion. has to come from... Well, I think it should be most people's opinions. People are abused. It's got nothing to do with gender. So let's talk for a moment about um, how this factors also into cross-examination. So um, I think something else that's important to consider is people need to really understand that when you approach a case like this, um, having this type of expert evidence available and knowing that you're going to call it at trial and most likely will have it admitted really informs the way you're going to cross-examine. So tell, tell us about how did how did you reshape your cross-examination having this now in your back pocket? I'm just going to give one really interesting example. So aside from the fact that the complainant walked into it by saying that um, when she went to the police, she said, I'm doing this because I'm certain he will do this in the future. They had separated. They'd been separated. They'd been separated for over a month. And what was interesting was she went to the police um, and alleged a month later that, you know, I'm, I'm certain he's going to do this to some other woman. So I have to come forward for the protection of other women. And, um, and, and she worked within the abuse system. And she said, um, and one of the issues with my former husband um, was not only did he, not only was it matrimonial rape, but um, that he had a traditional mindset, not going to name the culture. No. And that was him believing that he owned me and was able to, you know, do what he wanted. So that was a very rich um, statement because I had all these messages. Can I come pee in the washroom now? <sighs> like, yeah, I'm just going to take one. Yeah, take, take the good so one. There was, so my client um, would um, assist her brother. And, and, and her brother on one occasion during the course of their marriage was not well. So he had picked up food for him. And he uh, had taken her keys and fob, which had the fob to the brother's apartment so he could get in and, and leave the food. And he messaged her saying, uh, hi, um, whatever nickname they had, I, I'm going to bring uh, some food over to your brother because he's not feeling well. Do you think he'd like that? Answer, I don't know, ask him. Okay. And then he said, okay, I will, but I'm going to bring it over. And then later on, you see a series of messages where she says, WTF, you took my keys with the fob on it. And she's berating him for like three pages of messaging. Hope she had a good data plan. Oh, it was unbelievable. <laughs> uh, you know, you think you have the right to take anything. Everything belongs to you. You took, you, ha you think you have the right to take property that doesn't belong to you. How dare you? What the f***? Like, just unbelievable. And of course, I cross-examined her on that because of her, her language and the ferocity with which she was so insulted by what he did and, and his demanding nature. She actually used the term, not only in her statement, but at trial it came out because she, some people can't help being who they are. 
and when you when you when you get under their skin they go he was so entitled okay so then I had the benefit of their separation agreement. And we had an episode on why Here we family go. law Here intersects we yeah. well <laughs> with criminal law. If, it, if you're in a high, if it's a case arising from a high conflict divorce, you work closely with the family yeah. lawyer and you f***ing read everything. The ammunition you get. So this settlement agreement, God bless, had in it that um, my client was to pick up once the settlement was completed and he transferred $86,000 to her to pick up a series of documents mm -hmm. and pro property that's his. that's his yeah and we mentioned this in another episode but it was for example all of his immigration documents mm -hmm. including his citizenship card all of his job applications including his resume and details about his current employment tax returns i seem to recall all of his tax returns yeah. she even took his University of Toronto degree from the business program. It was hanging on the wall. Like there was more. Yeah. So when I'm cross-examining her, I said, I'm just curious, when you were giving your statement to the police, did you tell them about the things that you stole from my client? What are you talking about? And I cross-examined her on all these documents. She was like, oh, I was just cleaning out stuff as I was escaping from the property. Mm -hmm. And she just happened to help herself accidentally to like, 17 important things that all were relevant to her claim for unequal distribution of assets and everything else in assessing. She even changed the, mm, uh, the condo <laughs> that he owned, okay? You pay property tax, right? right? So the property tax notice goes to your apartment, right. your condo, or your home. She changed the address for the notice of assessment to go to her brother's place, okay? That's how controlling this person was. I was gonna say was. a bit of a control freak. Is that not a just control a, freak? Just a bit. So when I cross-examined her on that, then I gave her the messages. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay. So I guess this only applied to my client taking your key in the fob to give food to your brother, but God forbid it should apply to you right. stealing his property. Right. That's just one example of how I was very solid on my footing for cross-examination because of the expert evidence. I knew... I had, you know, as part of my arsenal, you know, an arrow in the quiver, mm -hmm. we're going to be calling this evidence just to further hit home right. about how he was controlled and dominated by her and abused by her. And the perfect example is this exchange of messages. What the f***? Yeah. When I cross-examined her, I said, what the f***? Because it's WTF. <laughs> okay, well, what does that stand for? It's WTF. It means what the f***? And the expert evidence in this case which was a unique case, was incredibly empowering for a really, really enlightening cross-examination. And the judge got it. And what was so satisfying about it was that for anybody who will say to us or somebody who will send me an email saying, you're a nut job, Mr. Newberger, you're an asshole, you know, how dare you suggest that, um, you know, that there are false allegations. Give me a f***ing break. Right. Unbelievable. You can't get around this. No, no, you can't. And, and but for the grace of God, you know, this poor guy um, might not have had this opportunity. Um, but we were able to afford this to him because we were able to tease it out of him. And, you know, 
our knowledge of this area is very helpful. There's a lot of excellent criminal lawyers in Toronto, like excellent lawyers. We've been, we have one of the most robust and strong defense bars, I think, in, in, in the world. But you know, not everybody will pick up on this. And it's really important to think about your, your, your client to understand what the psychology is and, and what's going on with them when you're, when you're marshalling your defense and how you're going to bring it along. It's making them three-dimensional versus one-dimensional or two-dimensional. That's the bottom line. That's an excellent point. You just, you're, you know, it's like from Star Wars. It's the holograph. Yeah, I know. I, I, I know. It's such beautiful. a great gift. It eh? really is. I love her clients. Um, one other thing just to talk about for a moment. You know, um, when you call this type of expert evidence and then it's accepted by the court, what's your determination? J just because you did appellate work and, and you still do appeal. You got to complete a fact this week. You, you know, you're doing a sexual assault appeal this week. Um, how unassailable, like the Crown can appeal this decision. And oh, they're knock, not going to knock yourselves out if they but, try. But just from your opinion, because right. you've done, yes. you know, for over thirty years, you've been in the court of appeal. You've done a ton of appellate work. Can the crown appeal this? I, they could try. I don't think. I don't think the higher ups that are going to approve whether this should go to appeal or are going to approve it. What? What? What's their? How can they appeal? Who's it? the higher ups? Like crown uh, ministry. Yeah, they, they don't know. Or right. viewers yeah, don't know. Yeah, the ministry of the attorney general. Typically, for serious cases like this one, there's a process where the trial crown, for example, will have to ask the senior crowns. Ministry of Attorney General, you know, can we appeal this? Is it worth appealing? Um, and they'll assess it independently and look at it. And how, how do you appeal this? Like, how do you appeal a, a result like this in terms of the judge's thorough reasoning in this case, the expert evidence? Like, what, what do you what do you and say? No reply evidence no re from the Crown rebutting yeah, the they, expert yeah, evidence. They didn't, right. They didn't call any reply evidence. It's airtight. This isn't going anywhere. Excellent. So we have finality for our client. Finally, yes. Okay, so the takeaway, and this is really important, is, you know, this case, and um, I'm, I'm open if anybody can send me other cases with this in Canada, we now have a solid foundation to use for the future in legitimate cases, right. not to be fashioned, right. not to be made up, but legitimate cases that both men and women can be abused, that men can be an abused spouse. Right. They can suffer from symptoms, they can suffer in silence in situations like this, and it has direct relevance to issues at trial and domestic abuse, including sexual assault cases. Right. So this is important, and you know what? Well, it gets it good gets, for us to yeah, get there. Yeah, I know it's wonderful. And, and to our client, yeah, I have to say, when the judgment was read, it, this was done by Zoom. Now we're in court all the time, but uh, this was the judgment was given by Zoom. Our client was in one of the boardrooms, and he couldn't move for twenty minutes. He was crying. And we were literally consoling him. And it was such a... Um, release. Release. And such, like, he, he just became a new person. And, you know, it was incredibly satisfying to see that relief and that regain of control over his life. Well, that's something Diana mentioned, that she saw the transition in him from this meek little mouse at the first interview with you guys yeah. to, at the end, confidence, um, not looking to anyone for permission to do anything. It's just, I'm my own guy now, finally. He he learned from the therapy. Right. And and from the supporting guy. I mean, Diana gave him fantastic she support. Did. She did. So it was really... Uh, A team effort. And it was nice to see. That's All right, until next time, 
if you like our podcast, can you please like, share, subscribe, hit notification, and just help us get the message out there so that... It's a huge case. It's a huge case. We need to get the message out there that there are false allegations, that not... Because people get charged doesn't mean they're guilty. And the police are under, you know, ridiculous guidelines to lay charges. So we need to get the message out there. So please like, share, subscribe, hit notification. Help us balance the scales here so that we can get justice for everybody. Good night.